0: Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. These are the audio versions of the sermons preached each Sunday. I hope you enjoy.
1: And with that, let us continue our worship by reading our first scripture reading. Coming to us from Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 5. Then the assembly rose as a body and brought Jesus before Pilate began to accuse him saying we found this man perverting our nation forbidding us to pay taxes to the Emperor and saying that he himself is the Messiah a king then Pilate asked him are you the king of the Jews he answered you say so then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds I find no basis for an accusation against this man but they were insistent and said he stirs up the people by teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee where he began even to this place the word of the lord thanks be to god
0: our second scripture reading today comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 18 to 25 for the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks desire wisdom. But we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. It's wonderful that you all have joined us during this Advent season, and as we enter in time where we are anticipating and preparing for the birth of Jesus. But unfortunately, this is no usual time. We find ourselves in a moment, as everyone is well aware of, which in recent memory is unlike anything any of us have ever experienced before. We are dealing with a pandemic. And so I have been trying to balance these two things out. We're in a very unusual time, and yet we're going into this very usual moment that a lot of us look forward to, this time where we can really think and ponder Jesus and his birth and what he has brought to us. And so I've decided that I want to do a series called Through the Looking Glass. The concept behind this series is it's based on the title from the follow-up to the children's story, Alice in Wonderland. Now, if you don't know anything about that story, let me just give you a little sense of what happens. So, once again, Alice finds herself in this fantastical world. Except this time, she enters into it through a mirror. And so, like everything we see in a mirror, the world is reversed, including logic. So, if you want to stand in place, you have to run. If you want to go towards somebody, you walk away from them. Chessmen from a chessboard are alive, fairy tale characters exist. And when I was reading through this story again, I was thinking to myself, my goodness, this sounds so much like the world we're living in right now. Everything is just topsy-turvy. But when I was kind of looking at this, I realized that what I didn't want to do in this series is just complain about how the world feels upside down. Instead, what I wanted to talk about is the paradox of human existence. Now... That may sound kind of strange, the paradox of human existence, but let me just walk you through what I'm talking about. So first of all, I think it's very important that we define what is a paradox. So a paradox is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. Now, this intersects with the idea of through the looking glass in the sense that when she goes into the mirror and this everything in this world is reversed, it seems like everything is contradictory or it doesn't make sense. But yet when you start to look at it, it does make sense. And so that's why we're talking about the paradox of human existence. Now, interestingly, almost every element of Jesus's life is paradoxical. And so what we're going to be doing in this sermon series is that each sermon, each week, is going to take one of those elements and we're going to examine the paradox. And what we're going to talk about through this is that if we can embrace that paradox, if we can make that a part of our lives, that will allow us to become a little bit more like Jesus who represents the totality of who we are supposed to become. Now, if this doesn't make a whole lot of sense to you, if it sounds kind of vague and you're like, I'm not exactly following you on this, Alex, trust me, it'll make total sense once we get to the end of the sermon. And to ease you into this, I want to tell you a story today about a man named Glenn Cunningham. Glenn Cunningham was born on August 4th, 1909 in the great state of Kansas. Now He grew up in a small little town named Elkhart. And by the time he was eight years old, he was there, as you can see in this photo, he's with his brothers and his sisters, and he was the youngest. He's the smallest one there. He's the baby in the picture. And by the time he was eight years old, he and his Older brother Floyd. They had been given a job. Every day, they were to go to their schoolhouse, and they were to heat it up during the winter time. And what that involved was they would take kerosene, pour it into a stove, they would light the pilot light, and that would get warm air circulating through the school, so that when all the kids showed up, they'd have a nice warm schoolhouse to come to. And they would do this every day, day in, day out, during the winter. But then one day, something unexpected happens. Instead of filling the canister with kerosene, somebody accidentally filled it with gasoline. And so they come in, they had no idea that this had happened, and Floyd picks up the canister, and he pours gasoline into the stove. And there were burning embers from the night before, and that immediately lit the gasoline on fire. The fire moved up the stream into the gas can and exploded. Both of the boys were engulfed in flames. Unfortunately, Glenn's older brother Floyd, he died from his burns. But Glenn, he was burned on his legs. And when he got taken to the hospital, the infection was so bad that the doctor came to his mother and said, look, we are going to have to amputate his legs because we don't know if he's going to be able to survive this infection. So Glenn's mother goes into Glenn, talks to him, and he's so scared by the prospect of losing his legs, even though he's in immense pain that she says you know what we're not going to amputate his legs we're just going to take the chance and so Glenn he ends up surviving in spite of the fact that he has these horribly burned legs and this horrible infection now to give you a sense of how bad it was he lost all the skin on his knees on his shins he lost all the toes on his left foot his transverse arch was completely destroyed and so the doctor said that it was a high likelihood that Glenn was never going to be able to walk again and while he was in the hospital he had to heal from this if you know anything about burn victims the healing process is horrible so the skin once it's burned it forms scar tissue and that scar tissue is very stiff and rigid unlike normal skin which is malleable and pliable once it's been burned and it heals it prevents a full range of motion and so if you want to get that full range of motion back you constantly have to break down the scar tissue which is horribly painful. So he starts going through this process in the hospital, and eventually this nurse comes in one day and takes Glenn's mom aside and says, look, you need to prepare for the likelihood that Glenn is going to be an invalid for the rest of his life. You need to mentally prepare for that, physically prepare for that, that you're going to be taking care of him forever. Now Glenn, he heard this. He wasn't supposed to hear it, but he did. And when Glenn's mother comes back in, he has this steely look in his eyes, and he says, I am not going to be an invalid. That lady's wrong. And Glenn's mother, she looks down at Glenn, kisses him on the forehead and says, I know Glenn, she's wrong. And so he eventually gets released from the hospital. He goes back home. At that point, he couldn't even stand up on his own, but he starts working on his own recovery. And by Christmas of 1917, His present to his mother was that he was able to stand on his own, and he even took his first few steps without any help. And so from this point forward, he developed this kind of wobbly walk. And so every day, he would go out to the split rail fence on his property, and he would stand himself up, he would hoist himself up, and he'd walk up and down the fence line, trying to walk, breaking that scar tissue down. It was horribly painful for him to do this. But what he eventually discovered is he would do this day in and day out. He'd do it for hours at a time. That running actually didn't hurt as much. He could run, and it would break the scar tissue, and he didn't feel the same amount of pain. And so he started running everywhere. He ran anything he had to do, he would run. And so over time, he developed this incredible cardiovascular strength to the point where he had amazing endurance. And one day when he was 12 years old, He was running in his downtown area, and he came across a drugstore, and in that drugstore, he saw a little poster for a race that was taking place, a track and field race, a one-mile track and field race, anybody could enter. And he said, okay, I want to get into this. So he had a little bit of a problem, though. His father did not like athletics. His father felt that athletics were a total waste of time, but Glenn enters anyway. He's 12 years old. He's going up against high schoolers, and he ends up winning the race. Like, he doesn't just win it, he destroys everybody who he's running. And of course, this makes it into the papers because he's a 12-year-old boy and he ends up beating all of these teenagers who are, you know, some of them seniors in high school. And of course, his father finds out about this and he's very, very angry and ends up beating Glenn for his disobedience. But that doesn't stop Glenn from running. He keeps running even more. And by the time he graduates from high school, he is one of the top runners in the nation. He gets recruited by Kansas University to run for their track team. And by his junior year, he's so good that he can try out for the 1932 U.S. Olympic team. He tries out and he makes the team for the 1500 meter event. And he was slated to be one of the people to probably medal in that event. So he goes over and unfortunately he gets tonsillitis. He gets his tonsils infected, and he has this inflamed throat. And so he ends up getting fourth place at the 1932 Olympics, which he was disappointed about. So he comes back to Kansas, and during his senior year, he ends up breaking the world record in the mile. He goes 406.7. And in fact, he had seven of the fastest mile times, seven of the 13 fastest mile times in recorded history up to that which was pretty remarkable. So he breaks the world record. He graduates from college. He ends up going to get his master's degree at the University of Iowa where he's studying physical education. And he continues to run. He continues to work really hard at his running. And so he, again, he tries out for the 1936 Olympics. This time they're being held in Berlin and Germany. And so he makes the team again. And this time he's slated to be the gold medalist in the 1500. Now he gets there. And this is a picture of him in the midst of this race. He's 7'46". And the person who he was primarily against was a New Zealander. His name was Jack Lovelock. And he's the one in the black who's right behind Glenn. And they're neck and neck all the way through. And both of them break the world record. Glenn breaks the world record by four-tenths of a second. But Lovelock, he ends up breaking it by a full second. So Lovelock, he takes the gold. Glenn ends up taking the silver. Now, I find this to be absolutely remarkable that Glenn Cunningham, a young boy who at eight years old was in an accident that was so bad that he was told that he would probably never walk again, ends up winning the silver medal in the Olympics for the 1500. Now, why have I told you this story? I tell you this story because when we think of great athletes, we often think of people who are incredibly gifted. We think of people who have been blessed with amazing genetics. People who have a work ethic and a drive and they can take those amazing gifts that they have and turn them into success in whatever sport they try. But Glenn Cunningham, he's the exact opposite of this. Glenn Cunningham, his success in running came out of his weakness. I don't think anybody when he was eight years old after his accident would have imagined that he would have been able to achieve a silver medal at the Olympic of all sports. His success was paradoxical. The idea that his inability to walk would become the source of his ability to run makes no sense. And yet his power and his strength in running came from his weakness. And I think that this is something that is so very important for us to consider. Which is this idea that oftentimes our strengths really do come from our weakness. And this is not just true of Glenn Cunningham, this is true of everyone. So I think this is a fundamental precept that we have to remember. It's actually a fundamental part of Christianity, which is this idea that we find our greatest source of strength from our weaknesses. And so, When we look at our scripture today, this is exactly what we see being spoken about. So our scripture reading came from 1 Corinthians, and in 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking about this idea of strength coming from weakness. And essentially what's happening is that he's writing back to the Corinthian church and he's fielding all of these various questions. And one of the questions that the people in the church are really struggling with is this idea that jesus their messiah who they're worshiping was executed and that he was executed for treason no less so to give you an idea because we're kind of divorced from this world at this time like we just worship jesus we don't really think about that but i want you to imagine for a second imagine that we were worshiping a man named william bruce mumford now you're probably thinking who is that william Charles mumford he is the only person in the united states to ever be executed for treason he was hanged in 1862 for pulling down an american flag during the american civil war now it would be odd right if we were to worship this man if we were to take our time to worship him. we'd be like why are you worshiping this guy it's the same thing that people felt about jesus at that day and time and paul recognizes how strange this is he says yes It is certainly an odd thing to worship a crucified Messiah. And on the surface, it would make no sense, right? When your Messiah is dead, that doesn't generally do anybody any good. But it is through this perceived weakness that we find strength. So it is through the fact that Jesus was killed, that his movement exploded. Because you have to remember that right before Jesus died, he only had the members of his group with him. Everybody else had kind of left him behind. And then after he dies, after he's executed, his movement just explodes. It kind of grows exponentially. And so to the outsider, this would seem to be a weakness, being executed, obviously. But it becomes the strength because it it becomes this example of how we are supposed to live our lives, and it becomes this example that people live into. They start to follow in his footsteps because of that weakness. And this is why we read today from the story of Jesus's trial before Pontius Pilate, because this is one of the greatest examples of this. So Jesus, he goes on trial before Pontius Pilate, and he's being accused of all of these different crimes. And the primary one that he's being accused of is treason. And so when he gets up there, he's being accused of a crime he doesn't commit, and he offers no defense of his actions which many people would say is foolish. If you're innocent of a crime, you should proclaim your innocence. What good does it do anyone to be executed for a crime you did not commit? But Jesus would take this weakness and it would become a source of strength for his disciples. So when they see what he went through, when they see how he died, it becomes this amazing example of how God has forgiven us. And it also becomes this source of pride and it shows and demonstrates to his disciples that nonviolence and that passive resistance are some of the best ways to gain power in the world now this is a flip logic it doesn't make a lot of sense that your strength would come from your weakness but this is exactly what paul is trying to show to the people in the corinthians church he's trying to say yes jesus was executed But God demonstrates power through that weakness. And I think this is something that we in the church really need to focus on during this time of Advent as we anticipate the birth of Jesus. Because so often what we think is important is a show of strength. We want people to respect our strength. We want people to fear our strength. And Pontius Pilate is a great example of this. With the stroke of his pen, he could end up putting anyone to death. At his word, 12 of the most well-trained soldiers in the world would come and take you, torture you and put you to death without a second thought. Now that is the power that we are taught to fear. That is power that when you look at it, you say, oh my gosh, I don't even want to get in the way of that. And we are taught also that if you want to overcome that kind of power and strength, that you have to use a force that is equal to or greater than the force of your enemy for example in world war ii all things were equal until we dropped the atom bomb and that caused the war to end rather swiftly but jesus he calls this logic into question and he says what if love has the same potential as brute force to fight against evil Now, many people, they scoff at this idea, including Christians, but this is Jesus' concept. In fact, the entire totality of this baby who we are going to celebrate on December 25th, he embodies this notion. So, everything about Jesus' life is a testament to love conquering violence. I think this is so very important. His entire life is a testament to love conquering violence. So, Jesus was killed by violence, and yet it is love that keeps his legacy alive two thousand years later. We don't remember the names of any of the soldiers who are responsible for killing Jesus. And in the moment that they killed him, they were stronger than he was. But over time, those soldiers they became mere artifacts in the larger story of Jesus's life. Over time, love rendered that strength that they had in that moment, it it showed that it was not enough to conquer Jesus. That temporary strength that they had, it wasn't enough to overcome him. And so what Jesus's life shows us, it's the same thing that Glenn Cunningham learned after his accident, which is that the person who revels in their weakness will eventually find strength. While the person who only focuses on their strengths will eventually be overtaken by their weaknesses. And so what I want to ask you this morning, the question I want to pose to you is, what are your weaknesses? What are the areas of your life where you don't seem to really feel like you're competent, where it doesn't add up for you, and you're scared to look at those things because of how it holds you back? And I want to end this morning by telling you a story about myself, and how I was able to take an area of weakness in my life and turn it into a strength. So those of you who know me, who are kind of aware of me, if you've been listening to my sermons, you know that when I grew up, one of the things that I greatly struggled with was my intelligence. Now, when I was placed in school in kindergarten, I was placed with the advanced students. But I was kind of like the worst of the advanced students. I was like the dumbest of them. I was always the last in that class. And almost everybody in my class, in fact, the entire class besides me, was part of what was known as the gifted and talented program, the GT program. Now, in order to get into the gifted and talented program, you had to pass a series of logic tests. and. I couldn't do that like I was I've always been very bad at logic tests I still am to this day and so I didn't score well on the test I couldn't get into the gifted and talented program now if you were part of the GT program what that meant was that you would get out of class twice a week to go to be part of this particular program and when all the kids would leave I would be left alone in the class like I'd be literally by myself with the teacher while everybody else was gone and I guess I would just do my own work while they're away and when they would come back not only would they be talking about all these creative things that they had done and I would feel like I had missed out but I would also feel as though that even if I had been there I wouldn't have been able to make any kind of significant contribution And over time, what I discovered is that there were other differences between myself and this group of gifted and talented students. So when it came to solving problems, they were able to do it the way the teacher wanted them to. Oftentimes, I was looking at it from a completely different vantage point. And sometimes I could get it, but oftentimes what would happen is I would have to do it my own way, and it would really frustrate the teacher. When we were given assignments in class, I was often the last person to finish the assignment and I often did it wrong. I was also a very slow reader, I still am. It takes me a long time to read things, so it took me twice the amount of time, and I didn't absorb things nearly as quickly as they did. They could read very quickly, absorb the information fast, and they were able to regurgitate it out. It seemed like I just was always one step behind them, and when it came to standardized tests, they just killed it. They could get into those standardized tests, and they were so fast, and for me, if the answer wasn't obvious, then I really struggled to get it down. Now, for the longest time, I tried to be like them. I tried to train my brain to be like them. I was like, I can do this. I can think the way they think. But eventually, I realized I can't. I'm not like them. I'm never going to be like them. And eventually, I just said, you know what? I'm not going to be smart, and that's okay, and I'll just move on with my life. And once I kind of accepted that, that I wasn't going to be like them, it actually opened a door for me because It allowed me to embrace the intelligence that I had and to kind of just say, okay, well, I am who I am. I'm just going to have to look at the things the way I look at them. And eventually, I came to realize there were benefits to my way of doing things. So, for example, I told you that it took me twice as long to read something as it did for them. But what I realized is, is that for me, I was actually committing a lot of that information to long-term memory. So, yes, it took me a lot longer, but I remembered it more than they did they would read very quickly they would do very well on a test but this was short-term memory for them they would forget about it much after the fact whereas i would remember it long after the fact and as i was kind of accumulating all of this knowledge and keeping it in my mind my mind started making connections between these different subject areas in a sense what was happening was i realized that my mind disparate ideas these disconnected ideas and see how they could actually come together in ways that other people weren't seeing. And this is why when I preach, sometimes I'm bringing in all this kind of different subject matter that doesn't really seem to relate to what we're talking about. It comes out of left field, but then I see it as, oh no, this actually really directly touches on what we're talking about. And so even though my brain was a liability when it came to standardized tests, my brain was an asset in the world of ideas. And so once I embraced my weakness, it really became this source of strength for me. And that's what I want to happen for you. I want you to examine your weaknesses. And I want you to take the time to figure out what are those areas of my life where I struggle? And how could those areas of my life where I struggle actually become strengths? Because as Glenn Cunningham proves to us, when you revel in your weakness, it can truly become a strength to us. And so my hope for you today is that you will allow God to turn those weaknesses into strengths because God wants to use those weaknesses for good. And I hope that you will realize that our model for turning weaknesses into strength comes from Jesus, this little baby boy who would grow up to become a man whose weakness would demonstrate to us that love truly can conquer all things. Amen. Thanks for listening.